Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, and we're coming to you from the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University. Our show today is about Ernie Pyle. Today is National Ernie Pyle Day. And we're um, going to be talking about the famed war correspondent on his 118th birthday. Sarah Whitmire joins me in the studio. She's the news bureau chief of WFIU and WTIU. And we have three other guests with us. John Bodner is a retired history professor at Indiana University. Dennis Elliott is a retired journalism professor at Indiana University and a uh, member of the board board of the Friends of Ernie Pyle. Owen Johnson, retired journalism professor at IU, also who sits on the board of the board of directors for the Friends of Ernie Pyle. If you have questions or comments, you can join us um, by calling 812-855-0811, toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So John is a history professor. We have two people from journalism. Uh, we just came from, a lot of us were attended this morning, an event that uh, it sort of kicked off this National Ernie Pyle Day, and there were a lot of people representing the media, a lot of people who represented the military because he was such a uh, prominent war correspondent. I wonder, um, Owen, if you could sort of start and just give uh, a short, if you can, um, uh, sort of view of who Ernie Pyle was and why it's important to honor him. I'm sorry you said short. I could take up the whole program. Um, Ernie Pyle grew up in just outside of Dana, Indiana, which is north of Terre Haute, about 40 miles. So he was a hick from the sticks, um, somebody who you would not think would have a world outlook. Um, but through his coverage of aviation for the Washington Daily News from 1928 to 32, uh, his trips across the United States from 1935 to 42, and finally, his coverage of World War II from 1942 to 45, um, he became an icon for journalists, uh, especially in war coverage. Mm-hmm. Every time a war starts, journalists are asking themselves, who's going to be this war's Ernie Pyle? And nobody has really quite reached that level yet. Mm-hmm. We're, we're going to play a bit of his writing in just a second, but I want to ask Dennis, part of what why people remember Ernie Pyle is because of the way he wrote. So could you talk a little bit about his writing style? Well, excuse me, I think the style is exactly the right thing to focus on. He had a way of communicating uh, whatever his topic of the moment might be in a way that resonated with people. They found it easy to identify with the kinds of things he was writing about and the way he was reporting them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going we're gonna to do a sample of that right now. This is a, a seven-minute clip, which is long, long for a radio program, but it's of one of Ernie Pyle's most famous uh, columns. What's the title of this column, Owen? Um, the Death of Captain Waskell. All right, here we go. The Death of Captain Waskow by Ernie Pyle At the Front Lines in Italy, January 10, 1944 In this war I have known a lot of officers who are loved and respected by the soldiers under them, but never have I crossed the trail of any man as beloved as Captain Henry T. Waskow of Belton, Texas. Captain Waskow was a company commander in the 36th Division. He had led his company since long before it left the States. He was very young, only in his middle twenties, but he carried in him a sincerity and gentleness that made people want to be guided by him. After my own father, he came next, a sergeant told me. He always looked after us, a soldier said. He'd go to bat for us every time. I've never known him to do anything unfair, another one said. I was at the foot of the mule trail the night they brought Captain Waskow's body down. 
The moon was nearly full at the time, and you could see far up the trail and even part way across the valley below. Soldiers made shadows in the moonlight as they walked. Dead men had been coming down the mountain all evening, lashed up to the backs of mules. They came lying belly down across the wooden pack saddles, their heads hanging down on the left side of the mule, their stiffened legs sticking out awkwardly from the other side, bobbing up and down as the mule walked. The Italian mule skinners were afraid to walk beside dead men, so Americans had to lead the mules down that night. Even the Americans were reluctant to unlash and lift off the bodies at the bottom, so an officer had to do it himself and ask others to help. The first one came early in the morning. They slid him down from the mule and stood him on his feet for a moment, while they got a new grip. In the half-light he might have been merely a sick man standing there, leaning on the others. Then they laid him on the ground in the shadow of the low stone wall alongside the road. I don't know who that first one was. You feel small in the presence of dead men, and ashamed at being alive, and you don't ask silly questions. We left him there beside the road, that first one, and we all went back into the cowshed and sat on water cans or lay on the straw, waiting for the next batch of mules. Somebody said the dead soldier had been dead for four days, and then nobody said anything more about it. We talked soldier talk for an hour or more. The dead man lay all alone outside in the shadow of the low stone wall. Then a soldier came into the cowshed and, and said there were some more bodies outside. We went out into the road. Four mules stood there in the moonlight in the road where the trail came down off the mountain. The soldiers who led them stood there waiting. This one is Captain Waskow, one of them said quietly. Two men unlashed his body from the mule and lifted it off and laid it in the shadow beside a low stone wall. Other men took the other bodies off. Finally, there were five lying end to end in a long row alongside the road. You don't cover up dead men in the combat zone. They just lie there in the shadows until somebody else comes after them. The unburdened mules moved off to their olive orchard. The men in the road seemed reluctant to leave. They stood around, and gradually, one by one, I could sense them moving close to Captain Waskow's body. Not so much to look, I think, as to say something in finality to him, and to themselves. I stood close by, and I could hear. One soldier came and looked down. He said out loud, Damn it. That's all he said. And then he walked away. Another one came. He said, Damn it to hell, anyway. He looked down for a few last moments, and then he turned and left. Another man came. I, th I think he was an officer. It was hard to tell officers from men in the half-light, for all were bearded and grimy dirty. The man looked down into the dead captain's face. Then he spoke directly to him, as though he were alive. He said, I'm sorry, old man. Then a soldier came and stood beside the officer, and bent over, and he too spoke to his dead captain, not in a whisper, but awfully tenderly, and he said, I sure am sorry, sir. Then the first man squatted down, and he reached down and took the dead hand, and he sat there for a full five minutes, holding the dead hand in his own, and looking intently into the dead face. He never uttered a sound all the time he sat there. And finally he put the hand down, and then reached up and gently straightened the points of the captain's shirt collar, and then sort of rearranged the tattered edges of his uniform around the wound. And then he got up and walked away down the road in the moonlight, all alone. After that the rest of us went back into the cowshed, leaving the five dead men lying in a line end to end in the shadow of the low stone wall. We lay down on the straw in the cowshed, and pretty soon we were all asleep.
So that was a, a reading of Ernie Pyle's column, The Death of Captain Waska. So I want to ask John Bodner about um, this kind of reporting during World War II. It was very personal reporting. Um, can you sort of put it in perspective, that, that kind of reporting, and what it meant um, you know, during that particular war? You know, as I listened to that uh, this morning or just now, I was uh, struck by something that's uh, uh, certainly well known about Ernie Pyle's reporting and writing, and that is that his uh, his focus on the, the struggles of the ordinary soldier and death, which is certainly the key theme that he's uh, describing there, the men being brought down the mountain. I think it was in Sicily, by the way. Uh, and, um, and, of course, the respect that they had for the captain, Waska. Um, that was not a subject that the public came to grips with very easily in the 1940s in World War II. The government, um, for about a year and a half, really imposed a fairly heavy degree of censorship uh, on the reporting of and uh, photographs of the American dead. In fact, it was not possible until about 43. And one of the things that um, finally sort of loosened that uh, desire on the part of the government to sort of squelch uh, reporting and photography uh, and even film uh, of the worst aspects of the war uh, was the clamor by some people to give us a more realistic point of view. So Pyle sort of is, uh, in a sense, he may not be, I don't know how, how conscious he is of this, but he's sort of challenging the idea uh, in much of his reporting that we can simply uh, believe that we can fight this war with a minimum of pain. Uh, he's not the only person that feels that way. But I'd say that he's more than a reporter. He's bearing witness to the suffering of people and the absolute centrality of death uh, in a culture, in any, any wartime culture, where that's always a problematic issue for governments that are running the war themselves. Mm-hmm. How do you think his reporting of the war influenced people's opinions here in the U.S.? Um, I think clearly he was one of a number of people who uh, uh, helped people to come to a, a better realization uh, of what was happening and, of course, the fate and the plight uh, of the common soldier. Um, but um, there was never a sort of a, a complete uh, move from uh, the, the side that said, you know, we shouldn't see all this stuff to the side that said we should. I mean, I think that's a tension that goes back and forth. Um, Americans were captured in the death march of Bataan in 42. uh, And I don't know how many, you could look it up, how many people, uh, both Filipinos and Americans, were killed. But the American public didn't know of it for 18 months. I mean, that's astounding when you think about that. I mean, we look back at Ernie Pyle. I think we have to realize that Pyle is sort of a crusader for a more truthful version of war. And not everybody wants that, not just the government that doesn't want to sort of emphasize the, the, the tragic costs of the war, uh, but a lot of people don't want to come to grips with something like that, even people who ask loved ones. I'll say one more thing and I'll stop. But um, the movies, for example, if you look at movies in the first part of the war, they're very patriotic, but they don't give you that gruesomeness, if you will. Uh, you don't get it until 45 almost in, in movies. In fact, some of the movies, that actually, one of them deals actually with Ernie Pyle's story. So Ernie Pyle's a sort of a, a key figure but it, it's in changing attitudes, but not all attitudes are going to change. Mm-hmm. If you want to join us on the program today is National Ernie Pyle Day, and we are devoting our program to the life of the, the Hoosier journalist. Of course, the journalism school here at Indiana University was housed in Ernie Pyle Hall for 60 years. It's now moved and it's now become the media school. But Ernie Pyle was a, a student at IU and graduated or did not graduate, left just before graduation uh, to go to work for – what paper did he go to work for? Uh, the Laporte Herald Argus. The Laporte Herald Argus. And uh, we're talking about, about – uh, his legacy today on Noon Edition. So I wanted to ask about this, uh, you know, the, again, this notion that he was a person that didn't write about, he didn't go to official sources. You know, he went to people who were sort of in the trenches, people who are on the ground. Owen, could you, you know, talk about that aspect of his work and his writing? Part of his image 
was that he dealt with ordinary sources, and he did a lot more than the average war correspondent. Um, but he counted Dwight Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, uh, important generals during the war among his friends, and they could make available to him um, or to, to open doors for him that otherwise um, would not be possible. What I think is interesting about Pyle, he was the only correspondent who was regularly published in the troops' newspaper, Stars and Stripes. And the troops would write their families back home, if you want to understand what we're going through. And they didn't say, but there was implicit in this, he can only write so much about this, but read Ernie Pyle. And the families and friends at home would write to the troops and say, um, boy, this Ernie Pyle is really on to something. I do need to comment about that recording about um, the death of Captain Waskow. It's often edited. And this one was edited in a small way um, because some newspapers were very sensitive to it. Um, this reading left off three letters that preceded Dammit. Oh. And even Dammit on a public radio station is stretching things a little bit, so I won't won't go beyond that. But um, it was chosen as the best column of the 20th century by the National Society of Newspaper Columnists. Mm -hmm. And it really does a superb job of portraying death in all its anonymity. So when they go back to the cowshed afterwards and they go to sleep, some people have edited that out because they think it takes away from the story. But in fact, it's very much an important part of the story. Mm-hmm. Dennis, the museum in Dana, uh, what kind of things are there and, and why, why is the museum important? Well, the museum is important, uh, first of all, because originally much of the artifacts was really controlled by the state. And the state at one point decided they can, could not continue to fund the museum and its maintenance. So the local uh, area Dana folks put, put the Friends of Ernie Pyle together. The development fund officially is the title and started doing a very good job of gathering these artifacts, working even now with the state archives and attempting to get more of the material that really is in storage back to the museum. Right now, the museum itself is is quite remarkable. Uh, The area consists of Pyle's home, which was moved to the location, and two rather large Quonset huts, which is one uh, area of uh, great focus for anyone visiting because there's so many artifacts there relative to World War II. One wall in one of the huts, for example, is is a wall of of honor, if you will, for local area residents who fought in World War II with, with individual photos. So there's still that very local connection. Uh, there are other things about Dana that a lot of people don't know about in terms of even the connection of the area to the early development of the atomic bomb. And one of the original heavy water plants was in the immediate Dana area. So the museum is is looking to move forward and grow. Uh, we're working on some affiliation and partnerships with other museums around the country. So we hope in the very near future we'll see a, a, a spurge of growth, if you will, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it sits in Dana, Indiana. Can you talk about the process or what you know of how this became a national holiday? Well, the national holiday came uh, primarily uh, through the work of the Ernie Pyle Legacy Foundation, which is a separate organization. And Owen introduced me to uh, one of the principals in that group when we were both still teaching. And uh, I actually work with them to help get their foundation on track and put a plan together of how they can move forward. And one of the things that we wanted to do was create this National Ernie Pyle Day. So working uh, because of the relationship to Indiana, Indiana University, and other Ernie Pyle connections, working with Senators Donnelly and Young to put this resolution in the Senate uh, took a while, but uh, it was passed very quickly once it got on the floor. So uh, it was an idea that even though it is a national day today, it's not a federal holiday, it's not observed in that way, but there are other things that are being done. For example, there is also now an Indiana Ernie Pyle Day, which we are looking into perhaps making that an annual Indiana Ernie Pyle Day. Mm-hmm. 
All right. If you want to join our program, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. John, um, when I when I read, and every year, you know, in, in my job, I do manage to read a few Ernie Pyle columns every year, usually close to a holiday or close to D-Day, close to D-Day or close to something commemorating his birth. And um, I'm always struck by the detail and the um, the D-Day columns that he wrote were columns that really sort of showed the horror of what went on, but also talked about the the payoff of of what you know what what the U.S. troops were trying to do with with D-Day, and I I I, I talk about that just to sort of set up this I, this question about the importance of uh, not the importance of but the 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 knowledge about World War II and whether we're you know all these World War II um, veterans are starting to die off. There just aren't that many that are left. Um, what what are we teaching about World War II? What are we learning? What what are people learning about World War II these days? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question, yeah. but let me let me sort of focus on this for a bit. And that's sort of the legacy of World War II, which is I think is pretty much what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, you can read a lot about what happened. We know they invaded on D-Day. We know we bombed Japanese. I mean, those are the, the facts and nuts and bolts of the war itself. But I think the, there's a certain trajectory in the way that Americans have understood World War II. And I believe that, and I'm generalizing now, that the, the popular understanding today is quite a bit different from the way it was seen in the 40s and 50s. Um, if you were to read a speech by, let's say, Ronald Reagan at D-Day at the Normandy celebrations in 1984, he would be talking about the miracles that happened and the sort of heroic men. But he wouldn't be – it wouldn't be Ernie Pyle's depiction who hits the beach the day after D-Day where it's all about the dead bodies floating in the water and buried in the sand. So back to that theme about confronting the tragedy, I would argue that – over the last 60 or 70 years, we have seen world – we have reimposed, if you will, the censorship about, about the tragic view of World War II. And we have turned it into a, a celebration, et cetera. If you were to read – and many of you have, possibly uh, – Tom Brokaw's best-selling book, The Greatest Generation, and look for any evidence that anyone died in World War II, you wouldn't find it. How would Ernie Pyle t- – have reviewed Brokaw's book. Well, we don't know, but it would have gone against everything that he was trying to accomplish. He understood that there was merit in the fight, but he was very sympathetic, empathetic, and I think probably revolted to an extent about the bloodshed and the carnage that, that he witnessed. He was a witness to World War II. Today, we don't witness World War II. We don't bear witness to the suffering and the pain. We celebrate the people who fought, and we call them with terms like the greatest generation. Ambrose's, uh, Stephen Ambrose's popular histories uh, of the airborne troops in World War II coming out around the same time in the 90s as Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, really now, uh, again, reinforces Brokaw's view and, and the, the more of the celebra- celebration of the war itself. So I think in many ways we've, we're not doing, we haven't done Ernie Pyle, uh, uh, or we've done him a disservice by sort of moving away from what he was trying to say, and that is, he said, whether there's a valid political reason for this or not, and certainly there was, um, don't forget the suffering and don't forget what these people went through. In Brokaw's book, there are stories and vignettes of people who go to war, learn valuable traits by serving in the military or fighting and learning how to sacrifice and work hard, and then use those traits to build a better life after the war. That's not necessarily a false statement. Those are not false statements, but they move away from what Pi was all about. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to have to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. It's uh, National Ernie Pyle Day. We're talking about Ernie Pyle. We'll be right back. the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com. 
and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. And we're talking about Ernie Pyle on this National Ernie Pyle Day. John Bodner, history, retired history professor from Indiana University. Dennis Elliott and Owen Johnson, who are both retired journalism professors from Indiana University. And they're both members of the Board of, board of the Friends of Ernie Pyle, are all three with us here in the studio. If you want to join us, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Owen, I wanted to get your reaction to the things that uh, John Bodner was saying about you know Ernie Pyle's depiction of World War II versus maybe some more modern. That's a really important question. Um, If you look at documentaries or stories that are written about World War II, inevitably they wind up quoting Ernie Pyle. Um, In in other words, you can't tell the story of World War II um, without him. I taught a course on Ernie Pyle for seven years in the old school of journalism, and it included a spring break trip to London, Normandy, and Paris. And I remember one year we had an outstanding freshman, Charlie Scudder, who now is a reporter for the Dallas Morning News. And he said, how would you understand what Pyle wrote on the beach? And there's this, we were at low tide that year, um, and there was this huge expanse of beach and somehow or other, he gets it into 900 words um, and draws a picture. And to me, that's part of what Pyle was especially effective at. He didn't write long sentences, um, trying to think of the Mike Harden, um, who was with the Columbus Dispatch for many years and a great Pyle fan. And he did an analysis once and said, you know, the average length of Pyle sentences are nine or ten words. But um, if you look what he packaged into that, um, it's amazing uh, what he was able to do. He was somewhat disappointed. Uh, he, we didn't have public opinion polls in those days. But I remember when he came back to the U.S., clearly suffering from PTSD in 1944, um, his letters show he was really upset because the public doesn't understand the sacrifices that our people are making over there. Pyle's range of topics was enormous. I mean, not a, he's famous for writing about the GIs, um, and he had a certain phrase um, to, to describe the GIs, but he also wrote about nurses and doctors and pilots. He also did some columns about African Americans. Now, you don't know that because he doesn't use the term common at the time, Negro, um, but he's writing about the Transportation Corps. And the people there were mostly black. The black newspapers in the United States picked that up. So Pyle was, it's it's amazing um, the range of material he was able to present um, and expecting that his readers would understand it. To some degree, they did. To some degree, they didn't. At the top of the show, you mentioned that going into every war, there's this who's going to be the next Ernie Pyle, but there's never been one. Why do you why do you think that is? Part of it has to do with the technology of the of the time. 
Um, Pi was not on deadline, um, whereas most of the other correspondents were. They had to get something in, whereas Pyle might store up a cache of 15 stories in his head um, and then, um, as he would put it, hole up in a hotel somewhere and write out those those 15 stories. So he had that benefit of time um, with Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, today's correspondence don't have that opportunity. I'm really curious about the access, but to be able to be there right along with the soldiers and, you know, bedding down with them and everything, is that even possible today? It it depends on the leadership. Um, General Eisenhower basically decided the more access we give to reporters, the better story, uh, the better the story will be told. And that could happen today as well. Well, there has been... I think there was some movement toward that in the maybe in Afghanistan and some other maybe in, in Iraq where there were embedded journalists, right, Dennis? That, right. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> that's the epitome, I think, of what we think about today. And again, that was a technological bridge, if you will, as Owen mentioned, because even then they were doing live reports from the field from the back of trucks, which was quite different than what Dirty Pyle was dealing with. But I think their connectivity to soldiers, although I don't recall seeing much in the way of reports of those embedded reporters of of the Gulf War years in the same way that Pyle was indeed embedded with the troops. It was just a totally different scenario. Mm -hmm. I would add that um, there is one reporter uh, from Afghanistan, David Finkel, um, who has written very much in the Ernie Pyle style and spent time with the troops. But his material has come out in books because um, there just was not a market for it um, on a daily basis. And he was here just a year or two ago. That's right. On campus. I'm sure you could speak to that, Bob. But just is there even space in a newspaper for something like this today? Would it be printed? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, it would be printed but not in a newspaper. It would be printed on a newspaper's website or some other – in some other form. Um, I wanted to, again, I want to go back to John Bodner and ask about, you know, we we hear a lot about how the Vietnam War was changed because of the reporting on it and probably more the television reporting on it. Are there some parallels between what Pyle was doing in print and what later happened in Vietnam with television media? Um, There's some parallels, and it it goes back to the larger question, which you've already raised here this morning. The parallels, of course, are that uh, I think most people would agree, whether you're studying history from an angle of history or the angle of journalism or whatever, or or communications, uh, that, of course, public support for the Vietnam War was undermined to the extent that a lot of the gruesomeness was televised almost on a daily basis to the American population. So it, it was getting more difficult to support an endeavor where you had to see what Pyle saw actually up close. So I think there are some parallels. I think it's interesting, and perhaps some of the journalism professors can comment on this, that we did embed reporters in the war on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq. But to the extent I understand it, those reporters, however, gave a much more pro-war report of what they saw. I mean, some exceptions, Finkel stuff on PTSD, of course, is good. But Um, It seems – so I don't know if um, it's inevitable that a reporter who is up close to the uh, situation is inevitably going to report in the same way that Ernie Pyle did. That's that's an interesting question because I think it goes back to some degree um, to how did these wars start. Um, The war against terror – um, dates from 9-11 in 2001 and the idea that America had been attacked in its heartland. Pearl Harbor was another instance, but we didn't learn about what had actually happened at Pearl Harbor for a long time. We didn't learn about the extents, extent of damage and loss of life. So in that way, um, the Roosevelt administration could start the narrative the way it wanted, and it didn't get away from that. Whereas with 9-11, we had demonstrations, we had protests, we had anti-Islam um, um, concerns, and I think it was very hard for the journalists to wrestle away that narrative and still maintain an audience and not be seen as being um, treasonous or anti-patriotic. Mm-hmm. 
I think uh, – well, let me give our phone numbers one more time. Uh, it's 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'd love to hear from you if you have questions or comments about Ernie Pyle and National Ernie Pyle Day uh, today. Um, otherwise, we have plenty of questions, so <laughs> – um, I wanted to ask, um, I guess, Owen and Dennis in particular, are there particular uh, – are there specific Ernie Pyle columns or things that he wrote about that maybe don't get as much attention that are really um, meaningful to each of you? Well, I think I have to yield to Owen on this because he has far more familiarity with more columns than I do. But I, But I can say that – when I came here to IU as an undergrad in the 60s, I mean, my, that was really probably my first awareness of Ernie Pyle, and obviously I was taking courses in Ernie Pyle Hall as a journalism major. But what it really inspired me to do was to go home and talk to my family. I uh, didn't have a lot of family members who fought in World War II. Uh, my father was very much involved with uh, producing parts in a factory for P-51s and things like that. But I really wanted to ask them about Ernie Pyle. And they said what I have come to learn and, and certainly being exposed to things here on campus and beyond of how Ernie Pyle was that lifeline. And he was – those columns uh, were looked forward to uh, and they were talked about. And fast-forwarding quite a few years later, only recently after my mother's passing, I was removing things from the home – and found an old family Bible and found two different Ernie Pyle obituaries mm -hmm. stuck in the pages of that Bible. Mm -hmm. So he connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, It's interesting to read all of Ernie Pyle's columns for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. I've been slowly digitizing all the Pyle columns, and I think the total will come out to something like 3,600. And there are some in there um, that except for the newspapers, have never seen the light of day. In fact, last night, a member of the Pyle family forwarded to me a column written about a um, tattoo parlor in San Diego um, and wondering if, if anybody knew more about the, the, the background, and um, they, they didn't. Um, two columns I would mention, they're somewhat known, um, one was from the end of December, I think December 29th, um, 1940, when Pyle had just arrived in London um, to cover the Blitz. And he writes this marvelous column um, from observations um, outside his room in the Savoy Hotel about the night London was ringed and stabbed with fire. And he writes about the total horror of it all. But he also talks about the beauty, the, 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 the lights caused by the um, explosions and, and that sort of thing. The other one is one that was not generally published during the war. And it was found in his pocket when he died on April 18, 1945, in draft form. And... It starts with something like, and now the war is over. And he was talking about Europe, and he was talking about all the dead bodies by the side of the road. And we have seen this, and at home, you will never understand. And it was so powerful, that's why it wasn't published at the time. I think Pittsburgh Press may have published it, but no other newspaper. We got a question from Greg, and he's wondering if you could, oh, and probably you, if you could talk about the kind of limitations that Pyle would have faced while reporting. Um, actually, he f faced very few. His material did go through censorship, um, but he knew or had a good sense of what would be allowed to go through, and so probably backed away a little bit, although at one time uh, he complained in his column about how um, the United States was cooperating with the um, pro-Axis um, French government in Vichy, and that went through. And so there is some thought that censors, when they saw Pyle stuff, they just immediately said, 
this isn't going to be a problem. So it'll go through. Um, he could hop on a Jeep uh, basically any time he wanted, um, go anywhere he wanted. Um, so, you know, compared to others in other wars, he had considerable freedom. Were there other reporters who were given the same kind of access who we just we haven't heard about? There actually are some, but they were not writing for a national audience. Um, so, for instance, the Des Moines Register uh, had a correspondent who wrote about boys from Iowa. And in the same form as Pyle did, and and Pyle and he were were very good friends, but they just didn't get the same kind of publicity. And the others, and Pyle talks about this to some extent. They were writing about the to and fro of the war. You know, how much territory did Allied troops gain today? Um, and I would mention one other column, um, and that's one that was written in Normandy in July of 1944. It portrays Pyle and the people around him coming under so-called friendly fire. Um, there was a, some, um, I don't know, colored material that was dropped to show the um, place between U.S. and German troops, or Allied and German troops. And the wind started blowing, it, and it started blowing back. And so suddenly Pyle and the people around him were coming under attack by bombs from overseas. And he dives in under a cow shed. Um, and, but some of the other people around him were killed. And uh, for, for me, that was an absolutely um, defining performance. But among those people around him were, were generals and ordinary soldiers. So he had this wonderful access uh, to all of these people. I think Pyle was clever, too. Um, we know that he would write about the most horrific aspects of the war, and sometimes that was troublesome, or even the political side, to censors. But he also gave censors something of what they wanted. Uh, a lot of Pyle's stories are about, a little bit about, where the young man came from. He may been, he's a young man from Iowa, and his father runs the local tavern, or his mother works at the local factory or whatever. So he sort of encased his, often would encase his stories of the uh, the bitter realities of war with a sort of a lar little larger story in a short amount of space, of course, uh, that is con conforming to what, say, the Office of War Information and the government wanted, which was a very virtuous and sort of idealistic portrait of American life. And so the small town life, the family life, is really rendered, I think, in pile in almost uh, romantic terms, when in fact, I mean, there could be problems in those towns or in those families. But so he gives the censors something of their patriotic, fulfill some of their patriotic aspirations, and then hits you with the gruesomeness and the bitter realities of the war. Smart guy. In the uh, in the the session this morning, there was um, a lot of conversation about the the role and the value of the media, and, and of course that's been under under some scrutiny and some attack um, today. And, and I guess I'll start with you, um, John Bodner, about um, you know the the different way that the media is viewed today, or the the press. Let's say the press was viewed today, because I'm not sure it would have been called the media back in 1940, the 1940s. Um, and the the role, I mean, people t this morning from, you know, the Democratic mayor of Bloomington, John Hamilton, to the Republican U.S. Senator Todd Young were talking in glowing terms about what Ernie Pyle did and then transferring that to journalism and the need for journalism, even though we hear other kinds of things. So I guess looking at that continuum from the 40s to where we are today about the, the historical view of, of journalists and journalism. Um, I may be not the best person to comment on the, the sort of evolution in public perception of journalism, but, uh, but I'll say that um, um, we all know, I think, that journalism is increasingly, or in our time, is increasingly controlled by a sort of central authorities, corporations, uh, large uh, conglomerates, etc. Not that that never existed before. You had the Hearst <laughs> newspaper chain in the past. But I, I think newspapers were a little bit more of the fabric uh, of community and local life than they are now. In fact, I, th I would assume, and you can all correct me on this, the newspapers are probably endangered species on a local level to, to some extent. But I want to talk a little bit just ab about the, the sort of climate of the times in the 40s. 
Um, the, the, the climate and the, the political atmosphere was one that sort of f- favored uh, what Roosevelt favored, and that was the common man. And I don't think it was unusual for reporters and newspapers to sort of take up the problems of what people faced, both first in the Depression and then during the war. And so I think newspapers were, were, were more willing to register, if you will, that sort of sensibility that people were struggling. And I, in fact, I think the Depression is the background here. I think it's the Depression for a lot of reporting on human struggle. And I think Pyle, who I think wrote columns about rural life and small-town life before the war, was part of that. He was like Woody uh, Guthrie. And Woody Guthrie sang, composed songs that were patriotic, but also songs that registered the sympathy uh, of the times, the dust for the Dust Bowl. And I think Pyle was more open, was also open to register that sort of human tragedy, which he does in the war. And I think the culture, the press, and even uh, to some extent the movie industry was all more open to that sort of human interest stuff than possibly it became over time. But Journalists and professors may want to correct me on that. You guys want to react to it? Uh? Dennis, you go first. Well, <clears throat> the thing that was going through my mind as John was talking and to your question, Bob, was I think the real difference today is technology, okay, and it is access, and it is the ability of something that is as important to journalists in the past as it is today, and that's all about fact-checking. It's so much easier to do that today and so much more immediate uh, with the tools available. Uh, when I was growing up, you looked forward to the morning or afternoon newspaper, and there were deadlines. And as working as a reporter for a newspaper, I knew I had a deadline, and it was time to, to file my story. Same thing when I worked for AP in those days as both a writer and photographer. There were things I had to do, and I knew when I had to do them. But what's happened, and certainly President Trump is not the first one to criticize the media in the ways that he does and, and refer to it as the enemy of the people – we can go back to President Nixon, who was certainly on the same wavelength as President Trump. The idea that today people are more open, or I should say inundated with sources of information, I think is what makes it difficult. And even thinking about a a war situation, even if you weren't embedded today, you still have the ability to get more immediacy of information And even during the time of the Gulf Wars, politicians and the military were still very much focused on what the media exposure was during Vietnam. Mm -hmm. It it stayed with them. And so even the restrictions put on embedded reporters during the Gulf War was was there. And they didn't have carte blanche to do what they wanted to do. I was struck by your comment, Bob, about the press as opposed to the media. In fact, Pyle described himself as a gender-specific newspaper man. Um, but I th- <laughs> this a- element of um, localness and local ownership was very important. I have done a lot of thinking about Pyle's writing. And when he was writing Aviation News for the Washington Daily News from 1928 to 32, his target audience was really the pilots. And so he did put, even in there, their local addresses or the addresses of where things could happen. And I think World War II was just a a continuation of this. But Albuquerque, um, what was by then his hometown, had two newspapers. Um, His column appeared in one of them. So he had to think a lot about who is it that's reading my material and this element of writing for the common man, as the old phrase goes, um, was, was I think, very much um, a part of, of, of this. And giving local addresses, um, one of the last columns he wrote uh, mentioned a man from Indianapolis. And the rifle that that man had is now in the Indiana State Museum. I mean, that's the local aspect. He was writing for Scripps Howard which was a newspaper chain, and I can't remember. I think his audience was 400 newspapers uh, at the end of the war, so it wasn't everybody. He reached a lot of other people um, through his books, but Roy Howard was also from Indiana. Um, He had been a newspaper delivery boy, um, 
at, at one time. He eventually wanted to circulate among I mean, he did interviews with Stalin, with um, Hitler, with Roosevelt um, that were widely publicized. He finally came to realize that Ernie Pyle was on to something. He was connecting with these local people. And only, I mean, Albuquerque, two newspapers. I can remember living in Houston in the summer of 1957, and we had three papers. <laughs> but now I think... You know, you've got the Post, the Daily News, and the Times in New York, but that's about the only multi-newspaper town. All right. We are about out of time. One last comment or last thing that you hope that uh, people have learned today about Ernie Pyle. Can you sum up in just a, a short comment, any, any of the three of you? John? I'll just say it's interesting that two of the really sort of most critical appraisals of World War II come from the writings of Ernie Pyle and Kurt Vonnegut, two Indiana uh, residents. I would simply say Pyle is a much more complicated and much more intelligent person um, than people usually give him credit for. Well, I think the thing I would say is that from a, a student perspective, uh, and I always made it an opportunity to talk to Owen's students after the trip he mentioned to see what they took back from that as well as from the course itself. And the idea that Ernie Pyle represented something that they could aspire to, that they saw the importance of that style and that ability to write and connect with people. All right. Thank you. to uh, That was Dennis Elliott, also Owen Johnson and John Bodner. Thank you all for being here today. Uh, for producer Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, Sarah Whitmire, and myself, Bob Salzberg, thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.